Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Tonight on The Readout. When the American people as a whole recognize that, uh, that we have in the past been wrong in depriving certain minorities of their constitutional rights, and when we make the decision to see that they will in the future have these rights, then I think uh, we're on the way to solving uh, most of our domestic problems. That was retired Republican former governor and Supreme Court Chief Justice Earl Warren back in 1969. Today, conservative justices are acting like a super legislative body to roll back rights, pushing a right wing agenda that the majority of Americans do not want. Also tonight, the culture of violence in America and how the powerful gun lobby has created a permission structure where it's not just about the right to own guns. It's fair game to use them. And sinking in the polls, Ron DeSantis is now pushing his vulgar, hate-filled anti-LGBTQ message all across America in lieu of any actual policy proposals to help the American people. But we begin tonight with the Supreme Court, which nowadays is acting more like a super Congress with last week's rulings on affirmative action and LGBTQ rights and on everything from voting rights to women's rights, labor policies and guns. They have acted like unelected politicians and not a court. It's the result of a long game from a right wing that recognizes that they have lost the culture wars. So instead, they say, fine, we can't win at the ballot box. So here's how we're going to enact ultra conservative policies. The court. It's not just what they personally want ideologically. It is what the billionaires who fund them want to bypass the public and let these six people do the work for them. As my friend and colleague Mehdi Hassan writes, today's conservative justices are happily imposing their reactionary legislative vision on America, not just by interpreting laws, but by effectively rewriting them in order to implement unpopular policies that could never get passed through Congress. Separation of powers be damned. And unlike the courts of the last century, this court has completely given away the capacity to surprise. You know how each of these right wing justices are going to rule. And they do exactly what you think they're going to do most of the time. That wasn't always the case. During the court presided over by Chief Justice Earl Warren from 1953 to 1969, Americans could genuinely wonder how the justices might rule on any given case. And you couldn't guess based on who nominated them or how conservative they were. Take Associate Justice Hugo Black, who'd been a member of the KKK as a younger man, yet was part of a unanimous was part of unanimous rulings in favor of school desegregation and legalizing interracial marriage or justice Harry Blackman nominated by Richard Nixon who wrote the majority opinion enshrining abortion protections in Roe v Wade and it was two Reagan nominees and a Bush nominee who joined with the majority upholding reproductive rights 20 years later during the court presided over by Chief Justice William Rehnquist 
Another Republican nominee on that court took his conservative colleagues to task for their decision in Bush v. Gore, Justice John Paul Stevens. The right has since succeeded in making a court that will never surprise them again, thanks to its bench of hard right ideologues served up by the Federalist Society. They have, just in the last year, on the John Roberts court, succeeded in erasing 70 years of protected rights for women, black Americans, LGBTQ people. And not just because the people who put them on the court are ideologues, but because they themselves are ideologues. Donald Trump put his stamp on the court with three justices, including Amy Coney Barrett. Before Justice Barrett was picked for the federal courts and jammed onto the court despite an impending election, she was a paid speaker five times at the Blackstone Legal Fellowship, a summer program established to inspire a distinctly Christian worldview in every area of law. The Blackstone program is run by Alliance Defending Freedom. Now, if you're not familiar with the Alliance Defending Freedom or ADF, you are familiar with their work. They've been designated an anti-LGBTQ hate group. The ADF represented the Colorado Baker, who refused to make a cake for a gay couple. And they've been involved in the barrage of anti-transgender bills being considered in states across the country. The ADF also wrote the Mississippi law behind the Supreme Court's decision throwing out 50 years of reproductive freedom in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health. And now they're behind the current case to kill the abortion bill Mifepristone, an effort funded by billionaires whose names you have heard of or who don't want you to hear them. The Shadowy Donors Trust and Charles Koch and the Charles Koch Institute. Last week, the ADF scored a victory for bigotry and intolerance in the name of Christianity, thanks to this Supreme Court. Representing the evangelical web designer who never made wedding websites but didn't want to make hypothetical sites for LGBTQ couples who didn't exist. The Alliance Defending Freedom wasn't the only shady group backed by right-wing billionaires to have the court do its bidding, turning back the clock last week. The court also ruled in, ruled in favor of students for fair admissions in killing affirmative action in college admissions. Except students for fair admissions involves no students. Just a 70-something-year-old white conservative activist named Ed Blum, who's, wa- who's worked, waged a long war against anything race-based in public life. Blum orchestrated the challenges that led to Shelby County versus Holder, the court ruling that gutted black voting rights and later recruited white student Abigail Fisher in his previous unsuccessful attempt to kill affirmative action in a case against the University of Texas. After that loss, he pivoted, at one point telling a Chinese-American group in Houston, quote, I needed Asian plaintiffs, but Ed Blum didn't find any. No Asian-American students testified against affirmative action. The Asian students who did testify did so in favor of affirmative action. But that didn't matter to this court. It helped that the dean of the School of Legislative Jurisprudence, Clarence Thomas, had his own long desire to kill the program he himself benefited from and thus to pull the ladder up behind him. The same Clarence Thomas, whose own votes in cases like Citizens United have pushed dark money into our politics and whose billionaire benefactors do more than just pay for financial goodies and treats for him personally. They also hate the things that he and his right-wing colleagues are so eager to overturn, namely the will of the people. The will of the people apparently be damned.
Joining me now is Michael Kirk, documentary filmmaker and director of the PBS Frontline documentary, Clarence and Ginny Thomas, Politics, Power, and the Supreme Court. And David Jolly, MSNBC political analyst and former Republican congressman who is no longer affiliated with the party. Thank you both for being here. Michael Kirk, I do want to start with you. Uh, I watched your documentary it was fascinating. I want to play a clip from it for those who haven't seen it yet, and I recommend everybody watch it. And this was something new to me, the nexus between Clarence Thomas and one Rush Limbaugh. Take a listen. Thomas told people he stopped reading mainstream news. Instead, he relied on two primary sources, his wife and Rush Limbaugh. He would listen to Rush Limbaugh when he, as he was doing a long commute, and he would have court staff tape record it so he could listen to it when he was commuting. Your attempt to assuage all of your white guilt by supporting Obama is worthless because you know he's not a real black. If any race of people should not have guilt about slavery, it's Caucasians. The two became close friends. The fear was, Clarence Thomas has confirmed, he then becomes the most powerful, influential black man in America. And he's not a Democrat. And he's not a liberal. Michael Kirk, it seems to me that the current Supreme Court is now a court of Rush Limbaugh's dreams. How did the right build that? Well, it's a, as you totally set up perfectly. There's a war in the country. It's a culture war, as we know, but it's also a political and 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 a war of our about our institutions and in our institutions and the results of what our institutions yield. Uh, a lot of trouble about the presidency, a lot of trouble about Congress, but only in the last forty years or so has the Supreme Court come up for uh, and and been put in play largely by, as you appropriately say, Joy. Uh, wealthy individuals uh, who are uh, represent the Republican Party, but also represent a change in America. And they've been hunting justices and people who would uh, suit that role uh, for the last uh, last 40 years, starting with Robert Bork's uh, case long ago, uh, leading to the creation of the Federalist Society. And then and then the uh, and then the selection of certain justices waiting for the right time, all under the tutelage of a name you didn't mention, uh, a film I also just made called about Mitch McConnell and the power of McConnell uh, to, to know when to hold them and when to fold them. And uh, it's been fascinating to watch. And it is part and parcel of, I think, the last great fight in our democracy over an institution that people are increasingly uh, feeling uh, it's just not what it used to be. It's not fair. The justices are are compromised in lots of ways, especially the conservative justices. And uh, there's no uh, there's no uh, calling them to do up to do for it, uh, for what they've done. So it's a. It's a, a kind of tragic thing that's happening inside the court. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and God knows uh, what we used to think of as settled law is now open. It's open season on everything that has ever been passed before. And it comes from, uh, it comes from uh, these justices who are not only ideological driven, ideologically driven, but are in a war and are warriors in that battle. 
You know, and David Jolly, you know, the Bork situation, I think it was 1987. I think it was late Reagan era. Um, and then Clarence Thomas comes along in 1992. And I think one could argue perjured himself on the bench. And it seems to me that from that era on, what we've had is every justice perjuring themselves because no one wants to be suitor, right? The one that, and, and I, back when you were Republican, I know you heard that name thrown around, Justice Souter, who surprised right. people because people thought he was going to be a conservative and instead he ruled in surprising ways. I mean, Earl Warren was a Republican governor of California. He was a conservative. But, and yet, you know, I think of the Loving case, an all-white, nine male, nine white guys, right? Nine white men, many of whom were conservatives, gave a 9-0 ruling in Loving. And so the justices used to surprise you. But it seems to me that after Souter, the right said, we're never going to be surprised again. If they have to perjure themselves, they're going to get on this court and get rid of Roe v. Wade. Check. They're going to get rid of now LGBTQ rights. Check. They're on the way to doing that. They're rolling back the Warren court and the 20th century. Um, what do you make of the fact that Republicans don't seem to believe they can do that through persuasion, that they don't believe that their case is strong yeah. enough to make through the political process that they're deciding this court's going to do it for them? Yeah, this has been an ideological strategy decades in the making, as you've laid out. And I think the anxiety of many Americans is they feel now that the Supreme Court is outside of the reach of accountability, that the current justices, whether they duped the Senate or whether the Senate simply did not have strong enough oversight during the confirmation hearings, the American people say, wait a minute, the court is going in a direction uh, that I'm not necessarily comfortable with. And I think we've got to rip the veneer off of this, Joy, for Democrats in particular. I, I know there's a hesitation on expanding the court. I am a recent convert to this. But if you consider, if you believe that truly we're in a moment where democracy and our rights are, are falling, if you will, that we're a nation that suffered the injury of January 6th, that we have a presidential candidate who may win, who is promising retribution for the next four years, that we've seen a court roll back civil rights, voting rights, protections of equality, and certain fundamental rights we believe we had. If democracy is in that much peril, it is not a big case to make yeah. to expand the number of seats on the court. And there is historical precedence for it, right? <clears throat> we know that the Constitution doesn't say there has to be nine. The number of, of court justices has changed, I believe, six times. It's been 150 years since. There's currently 13 appellate circuits or appellate districts. You could align the justices with the number of appellate districts as once was done in history. I think Democrats can make the case substantively on protection of rights, but also a clear analytical case for why this is an era in which we can consider expanding the court. And then the passionate arguments about, about McConnell stopping Merrick Garland and, and greenlighting Barrett are just fuel to the fire for what is a rational argument to protect democracy and protect our rights today. Yeah. You know, Michael, you know, having studied the court and done these documentaries, looking at it, I mean, they have no ethics rules. They don't have to live by any of the normal ethics rules that politicians or even city council people have to live by. Is there a sense that you've gotten of what changes would actually make the court less of a mini Congress? Well, uh, uh, absolutely. Uh, history has taught uh, taught us that the Supreme Court should be, they think of themselves as philosopher kings, they should be above uh, the day-to-day -day struggle of uh, of the law. 
The fact is, uh, as the former congressman said, there is a move and the move seems to be gaining steam to do something about the court, either term limits, uh, uh, make the court bigger, make the court smaller, don't replace justices, maybe when they leave, uh, make it completely different. And and that is, I think, uh, a move that's underway, whether it will actually happen, whether Congress, because it's still going to have to be Congress and it's yep. still going to have to be people. And we know from watching and reading the newspapers every day uh, that uh, Congress is just it's a blood blood feud up there and yeah. it's now its way to the court. And I don't see how it all works its way out. I, you know, I just I've talked to everybody, been there, followed it for years. And I don't see a positive way that this ends uh, uh, legislatively until the Congress and the American people stand up and say, hang on, let's do yeah. something about this. And I haven't seen that movement really take fire yet, but it is happening. People aren't talking about it the way they didn't five or 10 years ago. Uh, we are out of time, but David, I'm going to let you get a very quick word. How do Democrats get people to be fired up about it? I'm an optimist. Democrats make a bold legislative agenda going into 24 on affirmative action, on student loans, on LGBT protections, voting rights, civil rights, and say, not only will we legislate within the current uh, parameters we've been given by the court, we're asking you, the voter, to allow us to expand the court as well. Yeah. It's a bold agenda that voters will respond to. Uh, Michael Kirk and David Jolly, thank you both very much. Y'all should all watch that documentary, uh, Clarence and Ginny. It is really good. Up next on The Readout, how American gun manufacturers have worked with right-wing lawmakers to encourage not just owning guns, but using them. The Readout continues after this. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. The long holiday weekend shattered some records. Scientists believe that July 4th may have been one of the hottest days in about 125,000 years. And as the world was suffering under intense heat, the U.S. was suffering, again, from extreme violence. According to the Gun Violence Archive, at least 17 mass shootings were recorded across the country over the 4th of July holiday weekend. Yesterday, nine people were shot outside a holiday party in Washington, D.C. 
On Monday night, a shooter in a bulletproof vest randomly opened fire in Philadelphia, killing five people and wounding a toddler and a teenager. That same night, three people were killed and eight wounded when a few men just started shooting into a massive crowd in a suburb outside of Fort Worth, Texas. On Sunday, 30 people were shot, two fatally, at a block party in Baltimore. Aliyah Gonzalez was one of the victims. She was only 18. She was amazing, but she was going to be so big. And her star is so bright. She was the best sister I could ever ask for. And I miss her so much. Sadly, there is nothing more quintessentially American than fireworks and gun violence. So far, we've had more than 350 mass shootings this year. According to a recent survey, around one in five Americans has lost a family member to gun violence. One in five. More than half of American adults have said that they or a family member have experienced a gun-related incident. More than half. The violence, terror, and trauma doesn't happen in a vacuum. This country is awash with guns, and the gun lobby is using its power to both increase access to them and to expand gun owners' right to shoot first and ask questions later. On July 2nd, Florida joined 25 other states in allowing permitless carry. Florida, after hosting a string of gut-wrenching mass shootings, has leaned in to its permissive stand-your-ground laws. Caroline Light, who literally wrote the book on these laws, writes for the Tampa Bay Times that Florida has become the stand-your-ground hellscape in which lethal violence can be shoehorned into a tidy narrative of armed good guys deflecting a multitude of suspicious bad guys. Never mind that those presumed bad guys often turn out to be pool cleaners, ride-sharing customers, furniture delivery people, and sometimes neighbors. Joining me now is Ryan Buss, a former executive in the firearms industry. He's now a senior advisor to the Giffords Gun Violence Prevention Group and author of Gunfight, My Battle Against the Industry That Radicalized America. Ryan, I'm so glad that you were available to talk with us today. Um, I have to say, I did not go out on July 4th and would not. The idea of going to a mass gathering, a parade or a big fireworks thing outside seems insane to me, to be blunt, in America, because America is awash with guns, and now people don't just have them. They seem to want to shoot people with them and use them for whatever, you know? What do you think has changed in this country, um, which has always had a lot of guns, uh, in the recent years to make it a shooting gallery? Well, thanks for having me, Joy, and, and you know, in a lot of ways, I'm sorry to be here, but um, I think a lot has changed, especially in the last 20 years. We've doubled the number of guns in our society in the last 20 years. And I think this really is the test of our democracy. You, the, the right to own firearms is an immensely powerful thing. In fact, nothing is more targeted at the ability to remove the life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness of fellow citizens in just a second or two, dozens of them, as we've seen, than the right to own firearms. And so as we double the number of firearms, you would think that we'd, we would want to double the commensurate responsibility along with those firearms, because if we don't do that, I think we can see, right, we are we are stress testing our democracy here, um, especially this Philadelphia case. That, that brings to mind the sort of changes I've seen in the firearms industry 20 years ago. There was no sort of tactical gear that was sold or advertised by the industry. And by the way, tactical means planned, 
offensive military operation. So like this kid in Philadelphia does, he plans to do this. He gets the gear, he purchases, he researches, he have two, he has two guns, one of them a ghost gun, by the way, without a serial number. And then he goes out and essentially executes a planned military operation. And I don't think that's by accident. The industry now almost exclusively markets tactical gear. In other words, it's for planned, aggressive, offensive operations. And the thing is, is that whenever there's a mass shooting, like, for instance, there were more there's more violent incidences against Asian-Americans because Donald Trump pinned uh, covid on China. And so the gun industry goes, "Ooh, Asian-Americans buy more guns. Uh, whenever there's a mass shooting, you see people buy more guns. And now I don't know how anybody can be a door dasher. I don't know how anybody can do a job where they have to deliver to someone's home or deliver Amazon. Ringing a doorbell is deadly now. The industry has also encouraged not the the stand your ground laws say, don't just have a gun, shoot someone, use it. Somebody rings your doorbell, shoot them because we'll protect you under the law. Yeah. So look, fear sells guns. Okay. If you don't, if you don't believe that, think of yourself being fearful enough to eventually need to protect yourself or your family. Eventually, anyone will go purchase a gun if you feel fearful enough. And, and I appreciate the right to, to defend oneself. My question is, do we really want, are we really making the choices to live in a country where a kid in Kansas City, as you notice, that you know, knocks on a door to find his siblings and you have this guy so fear-filled and armed in his house that he shoots the kid? I mean, is that really the country we want to live in? Because because we are making choices that are placing us further and further down that line. And I and I really think that these are the byproducts of this radicalized Republican approach where short-term gain for elections is worth any outcome, right? We can increase the fear. We can increase the conspiracy. Who cares as long as we win one more election? Who cares what it does to the democracy? Well, we might want to start caring. Well, I mean, people are sitting home mainlining Fox and getting these false impressions that certain groups of people, particularly black and brown people, are inherently dangerous. And then when somebody black knocks on your door, boom, you just shoot them, right? And I wonder about an industry that also is showing children with guns. They're they're marking the idea that little kids should have guns. And then little kids show up to their school with guns. The industry wants this, right? Because apparently you ask the question, I think the answer is yes. I think there are certain percentages of Americans that do want this to be the way we live. And I think the industry in general, the gun industry does want it. Well, I can tell you a dozen or 15 years ago, the industry was a different place, much like our politics were. They were imperfect, but they were norms of responsibility across which people knew not to step. And now there is a large segment of the marketing in the firearms industry that says not you shouldn't be ready to defend yourself. You should be ready for offensive action against your fellow citizens, right? right. We are arming ourselves for a potential civil war, or as some of the stuff you know, I, I liken it to a storm creating its own weather. If you have enough people buying guns to scare enough people, then the other people will get guns, and then and then the thing just spins and spins like a hurricane sucking up water. And um, that's a dangerous place to be when we're we're decreasing responsibility and we're increasing freedom um, at a rapid rate. Like those things got to balance out, and and we're out of balance right now. Yeah, indeed. Very well said. And I pronounced your name wrong. I'm going to pronounce it correctly now. Ryan Bussey. Thank you. Please come back. Uh, It's always really such a a valuable opportunity to speak with you. Thank you. And still ahead, MAGA Republicans chairs. MAGA Republicans continue to take the low road with their rhetoric on July 4th. We'll be right back. Hey, 
everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. We all have our different thoughts on the 4th of July and whether and how to celebrate the adoption of the Declaration of Independence, which, let's just face it, was not the triumph for most people in the 16 American colonies that it was for the slave-owning founders. We can just stipulate to that. Still, whether you view the day as a fireworks-filled celebration or just a much-needed day off, each of us marks the day in our own way. But this year, some in the Republican Party made some, let's just call them, interesting choices. The party itself took to Twitter to honor the day, but seemed to show their true patriotic spirit for Liberia. You see the difference there, Republicans? The U.S. flag has 13 stripes and 50 stars, whereas the Liberian flag that you use has 11 stripes and one star. Do you see the difference? And I'd be happy to explain why the flags are so similar, but I know how much you hate all the scary slavery-related history stuff. So, you know, I just won't bother. Meanwhile, as is customary, many of the Republican presidential candidates participated in local parades in early voting states like Iowa and New Hampshire. However, the leading Republican candidate was not out among the voters, but was instead squirreled away at his New Jersey golf club, repeatedly posting on his failing social media platform like a lonely divorcee who moved back into his mother's basement. Donald Trump's July 4th celebration, including posting an image with his head superimposed on George Washington's body, as well as one that included the words F Biden. And he didn't use F, which he posted at 2.24 in the morning. I mean, does Melania like hang out with him at all? Anyway, he also continued his attacks on the DOJ and special counsel Jack Smith over their various investigations into his alleged crimes. That included today... That continued today, I should say, with Trump calling on people to take to the streets. And in an even more deranged post, Trump made completely unhinged claims against the Biden family regarding a truly bizarre occurrence, a small bag of cocaine found in the White House. Yes, we live in that timeline, about which he went after Hunter Biden, of course, and referred to Jack Smith as a crackhead, which I promise you he is not. And no, I'm not making this up. Joining me now to make make this all kind of make sense, I guess, is Maria Teresa Kumar, president and CEO of Voto Latino, and April Ryan, White House correspondent for the Grio. Both are MSNBC contributors. And uh, you win the short straw, April Ryan, since you used to be a White House correspondent of explaining. Used to be, I still am. Oh, still correspondent <laughs> for the Grio. You're right. We, yeah. As long time. I mean, OG White House correspondent. 26 and have written multiple years, books. Still counting, yes. And still counting <laughs> and, uh, and have covered many, many presidents. Please to explain yes. to me, um, the former mm-hmm. president. I mean, this guy was the president of the whole United States. 
But his lack of just basic dignity and decorum. Have, have you, having covered many presidents, experienced anything like that before from any of the others? Joy, uh, this president, former president, who many believe could be president again, and that's real. Um, you cannot explain the thought process of that president, former president. Think about what he tweeted, Kafefi. You know, we would hear rantings within the White House about different little things, things that didn't make sense. Joy, there is a segment of society that loves this. They love the fact that he goes against what people perceive as the other. Can you say Jack Smith? Can you say anybody else, right? Wait, can I say um, Abel Ryan? Can I, can I just play? Can we say Abel Ryan? Let's play it. Let, let's play the tape. Roll the tape. Oh, boy. <laughs> Go ahead. Take the take. The well, I'll give you voters. I, I will give you voter suppression. You just have to sit down, please. Sit down. I didn't call you. I didn't call you. I didn't call you. Uh, I'm not I'm not responding. I'm responding. to. Excuse me. I'm not responding to you. I'm talking to this gentleman. Will you please sit down? Would, excuse me. Excuse me, would you please sit down? Please go ahead. Very hostile. Uh, it's such a hostile media. It's so sad. You ask me about, no, you rudely interrupted him. You rudely interrupted him. Same thing with April Ryan. I watch her get up. I mean, you talk about somebody that's a loser. She doesn't know what the hell she's doing. She's very uh, nasty, and she shouldn't be. I, I mean, April, those performances. I can laugh now. I can laugh now. I, I know you were not Go laughing ahead. then, but I mean, the reality <laughs> is, is abusing a black woman professional journalist is part of why people like him. It's racist. It's misogynist. It's his brand. But it is not a dignified performance by a president of the United States. You know, let me say this in a very um, highbrow, I guess you will say, way um, when they go low, you go high kind of way, according to Michelle Obama, who he's also talked about as well, um, the former first lady of the United States. That president has a problem, had a problem yesterday and today with anyone who asks him something, either he doesn't know or he doesn't want to confront. OK, at that time, um, let me take you back to that that press conference. It was literally after the midterm election and there was concern about voter suppression. And I had. I was like two to three rows back and it was off. Like I said, sir, what about voter right. suppression? And he said, I'll give you voter suppression. He responded to me. And when a president responds to you out of respect for the office, you stand and right. give him that respect. But yet as a 50 some year old woman, he told me to sit down a mother, yeah. upstanding person in the community. And then the next day they had pulled Jim Acosta's press pass and I was right. the next one they wanted to but I'm yeah. still here. Five presidents and still. Can. And, and, and MTA, the, the thing about it is that the question for the Biden team, I guess, at this point is how do you respond to that in a country that is easily bored and is easily entertained by somebody like that? I think one of the things that we don't laugh at these issues, when he was going after April Ryan, when he was going after Jim Acosta, he was going after the fourth estate. He was trying to make fun of 
and intimidate journalists so that they were not in positions to ask the hard questions. He didn't want transparency. And what he showed us yesterday on July 4th was his lack of patriotism, his lack of ability to bring people together. And there should be no voter in America that forgets who he really is. He is a divider who peddles and lies in division because he doesn't want us to be smart about what he is about. And what he is about is just himself. He's not about democracy. He's not about you know, that. He's not about policy. And I would just end with this. You know, when he's he has this superimposed face of himself on George Washington for every person who served in the military. They should take umbrage exactly. with that because this is a That's man right. who dodged military service over bone spurs because he didn't want to actually fight for the country that so many have sacrificed for. And yesterday was a day of patriotism, and he forgot that most Americans were weary of him. And so good for him to remind us who he is as we yeah. enter 2020. And I, I wish we had more time, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring you back. I'm, hold that thought. You're going to have to text me that thought later because we are out of time. Uh, but I'm going to bring you both back later. We're going to uh, reassemble this dynamic duo uh, for more segments. We are out of time right now. Maria Jusuf Kumar, April Ryan, thank you. Coming up, a new DeSantis political ad has even conservative LGBTQ groups up in arms. And for good reason. You literally have to see it to believe it. And we will show it to you when we're back after this short break. If Caitlyn Jenner were to walk into Trump Tower and want to use the bathroom, Ron DeSantis's mission to make America Florida isn't going so well. I mean, how does a man who took on Mickey Mouse and lost win the U.S. presidency? Things look so bleak. Even his own super PAC spokesman, Steve Cortez, sounded the alarm on a thing called Twitter spaces, which I guess Elon expects you to pay for, saying, quote, right now in national polling, we are way behind. It's an uphill battle, but clearly Donald Trump is the runaway frontrunner. Wow. Yikes. <laughs> so it kind of makes sense that DeSantis released what is possibly the most bizarre ad in political history. Warning to our viewers, this is indeed real life. Make America great again. Psych! Congratulations, Ron DeSantis. Mission accomplished. You win. beam eyeballs, Ron. Are you okay? Because of course, America is thirsty for a candidate spliced with footage of oily bodybuilders and oily sad Achilles, which by the way is totally giving incel TikTok. But jokes aside, the ads gross homophobia and transphobia are so extreme. Even the president of the log cabin Republicans slammed it. You've got some strange imagery of Ron DeSantis being between two oiled up, hunky type of men. I mean, the ad smacked of both homophobia and homoeroticism at the same time. So anybody who's a political professional looking at this is is really just very confused as to what the point of this ad was and what the intention of it was. I mean, yeah. I mean, it kind of sums up how most Americans feel about the entire campaign to begin with. Confused. Because the Florida blueprint is a prototype they reject. The war on woke is a fight they never signed up for, which is why the Supreme Court's conservative majority had to use a fake case to legalize discrimination against gay people. Someone clearly missed the memo. 
because Ron still apparently thinks running on hating gay and trans people and weaponizing the government against them and also doing a weird ad is a winning campaign tactic. Why it never will be next. And I'm going to leave aside the strangeness of trying to prove your manhood by putting up a video that splices images of you in between oiled up shirtless bodybuilders. Who are you trying to help? Who are you trying to make better off? And what public policy problems do you get up in the morning thinking about how to solve? And with that, the first openly gay cabinet secretary dropped the mic on Baby Maga's anti-LGBTQ ad. The ad serves as Ron DeSantis' latest effort to weaponize homophobia to boost his lackluster White House campaign. And joining me now to discuss is Clay Kane, Democratic strategist and host of The Clay Kane Show on Sirius XM's Urban View, and Michelangelo Signorelli, host of The Michelangelo Signorelli Show, also on Sirius XM. We have a whole Sirius XM uh, segment here. Uh, Mike, I got to go to you first, Michelangelo Signorelli, because I We've all internally all day been trying to explain what this ad is. And my senior producer just gave me the best answer. It's somebody who is running a super hyper local campaign whose references no one would understand outside of Florida, because I don't even know what that ad is supposed to be. It looks like an an ad for like a nightclub or something. Can you explain it? What do you what do you take from the ad? Okay, well, let me give you a a couple of ideas of what they're trying to do. Um, First of all, he's desperate and he is trying to out hate Trump. Right. And so he's doing two things. He's trying to show that Trump is too pro LGBTQ, which is insane because Trump was the most anti LGBTQ president. He finds a couple of things Trump said in 2016 and puts them in there. The second thing he's trying to do, which is what we're all saying is bizarro and weird and crazy, is he's trying to reach these incels, the Nick Fuentes crowd, the neo-Nazis. They're recruiting incels. They're misogynistic. They're homophobic. And he's trying to connect with them. All of that imagery, the bodybuilders, uh, you know, Christian Bale as American Psycho, connecting with all of that ugly alpha male stuff. He's trying to get those people on board his campaign. And he thinks everybody else will just say, I don't know what that is, or won't notice it, or we'll say it's just crazy. You know, Clay, so I guess getting the incel vote is, I guess, a way to get the debt Republican nomination. It's weird. Are the incels like, is that, do you, (laughs) I mean, as a Democratic strategist, are you willing to concede the incel vote to Ron DeSantis? Uh, That would be a mistake. And you know, what's funny when I was watching the ad, the first thing I thought was the lady protests too much. I mean, I don't understand the obsession that DeSantis has with the LGBT community. I'm getting Ted Haggard, Larry Craig vibes. If you all know who that is, you know, look it up. Uh, It's disturbing to me. But, you know, what's interesting is that when Republicans bomb in the polls, which he is, they go for that Southern strategy 2.0 tactic. So this is like the gay version of the Willie Horton ad. And he's hoping it's going to resonate with his base, incentivize his base. And I hope that it won't. I hope that incel base is not fiery enough. But the truth of the matter is. You never know. You never know with with, with GOP voters. They elected Trump. The thing about it is, Michelangelo, if you look at the polling, the vast majority of people, even pluralities of Republicans, have come to accept 
LGBTQ people as, as, as being worthy of living their lives without discrimination. 71% support gay marriage. That wouldn't have been true 10 years ago, right? I mean, the only issues that are a little underwater are issues regarding trans, but the majority, even people mostly believe transgender people, you know, ought to have rights. That is an issue that feels very retro. What do you make of the fact that not just DeSantis, but even the Supreme Court, there's an obsession with rolling back gay rights. There's an obsession with trans people. What do you think that comes from? And what do you think the purpose of it is? Because it isn't winning new voters over. No, for DeSantis in a general election, this is a disaster. But everything he's done, the six-week abortion ban, everything, it's been just about trying to make inroads with that base and then he'll deal with it later, which I don't know. And when you show those numbers, it's pretty uh, clear. What's happening with the Supreme Court, this is all the reverberation of what Donald Trump did, right? I mean, the damage he did was incalculable, and they're speaking for a minority of Americans. This is a minority rule. We're seeing it in action, and it's only going to get worse if we don't stand up and fight really hard. And Clay, you know, that is the thing, is there is this sort of desperation to roll back the culture, the desperation to roll back the idea that, you know, people want to know more history. They they are terrified of books. They're terrified. But the the anti-LGBTQ thing feels particularly aggressive all the way to the Supreme Court. Is there a concern among Democrats that that might somehow resonate with people in a general election? Because it doesn't seem like it would. And younger people are done. Like, you're not going to get younger voters this way at all. Listen, I think it's important that Democrats really capitalize on this. I don't think they should avoid it. I think they should really face it head on to show how hateful this is. And if I can just add really quick, the uh, law cabin Republican that you mentioned at the top of the segment Uh, They are the gay version of black voters for Trump. So I hope that they realize that they're coming for you. Maybe you didn't care when the Voting Rights Act was gutted in 2013. You didn't care about affirmative action. You don't care about Roe v. Wade. They're coming for same-sex marriage. They're coming for LGBT folks. And that's the issue right now. We sometimes don't care until it impacts us personally. So I kind of laughed when I heard the head of that that particular uh, gay Republican group, because you're on the list, too, whether or not you know it. And Michelangelo, that feels to me very real. I I think people are kidding themselves if they don't think the Supreme Court is going to come for all of it. Absolutely true. Clarence Clarence Thomas gave us the signal in in the Dobbs decision. He said they wanted to revisit that. What we just saw last week was a catastrophe uh, for rights. And um, they're they're on a radical roll. And we've got to do everything we can to stop it. Everybody's on the menu except white Christian conservatives. Wake up, everybody. Stay woke. Clay Kane, Michelangelo Signorelli, thank you both very much. That's tonight's readout. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley, in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.